Hello, my angels, and welcome to Hortopia, the podcast. This is going to be a space where we reimagine a new world by challenging the capitalistic, patriarchal values that dominate our society. Together, we will rethink and reinvent our understanding of anything and everything, especially the institutions and ideologies that attempt to keep us in the margins. My name is Tilly, and I will be guiding you all on this journey from my own anti-capitalist, intersectional feminist, sex-positive, poor perspective. Fuck you. Pay me. Let's get into it. Hello, my babes. Sorry for the huge delay between episodes. This time, I really am sorry. I really was planning on recording this episode like two months ago. But this bloody lockdown has really hit me hard. For anyone who's not in so-called Australia, Sydney, which is where I live, has been in lockdown for over two months now. And when we went into this lockdown, it was a bit of a surprise just because we had lived COVID-free for almost a year and life was feeling fairly normal. And I don't think any of us really anticipated that we'd still be in lockdown over two months later. So I've been trying to keep my mental health stable. I have made a huge investment into the most beneficial mental health tool, which is a little pooch named Bobo. And between Bobo and trying to maintain my sanity, I've stayed away from Instagram for a few weeks. I stayed away from looking at this episode or any episodes for this podcast for a few weeks. But it doesn't look like this lockdown is going to go away anytime soon. Shout out to the Delta strain. So... I think it's time that I just get my shit together, snap out of it, and get back into all the things that I'm passionate about, including this little podcast of mine. Before we get into today's episode, as always, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from unceded Gadigal land, and I acknowledge all First Peoples of this land and celebrate their enduring connections to country, knowledge, and stories. I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. This land always was and always will be. Aboriginal land. So today's episode, I'm going to take a look at the politicization of whores. Why is it that we as a community are so political? Why are there so many whores who are such strong social justice warriors who often campaign for more than just our own personal communities, but for other marginalized and stigmatized peoples? In my personal opinion, there are two main reasons why sex workers are so vocal in their politics. The first is the fact that our very existence within society is a political act. Intersectionality also plays a huge role in this politicization, which I'll get to. But to just exist as a sex worker, regardless of the criminal model employed wherever you are, is a rejection of classic capitalism from both the economic and the gendered paradigms. Which leads to the second reason. Our rejection or sidelining of the classic capitalist model is the second main reason why we are largely political, especially as individuals. Now, before we get into it, in today's episode, I am going to be talking a lot about both capitalism and intersectionality. I've done a breakdown episode on each of those topics. So if you haven't already listened to those, stop this episode, go back and listen to those two first, then... When you're ready, let's get into it. I believe that for many of us, the moment you become a whore 
or you enter the sex industry as a worker, you're exposed to a different understanding of society. If you live in a Western context, you've been socialized into believing that nobody chooses to become a sex worker, especially not a person who has self-respect or any understanding of their own self-worth. We're conditioned to believe that sex is a sacred act with ideas of virginity and purity only applicable to women, bringing forth the gender double standards that come into play when we talk about sex and sexuality, which we've normalized and accepted as biological facts. We're conditioned to understand that through the capitalist paradigm, our society is a fair and free place, and if you just work hard, you'll be afforded all the opportunities and possibilities that you deserve. Now, my argument here is that when you become a sex worker, for whatever reason, you can very easily start to recognize that we as a society have been fed an immense amount of lies about what it means to be good, acceptable, and worthy of human rights. You see, as a sex worker, that privilege is maintained and gatekept for particular people in our society, which is the white cis man, And we see that this concentrated power didn't happen by accident. These men who sit at the top of the power hierarchy help frame the societal understandings, and they have since the dawn of patriarchy, in a way that concentrates power at the top of the hierarchy pyramid, keeping certain people not just out of power, but out of control of their own ways of being and understanding the world. There's this concept known as humanism. And I think I did touch on this concept a little bit when I talked about intersectional feminism. Humanism as a concept can have a a bunch of different meanings. And in the philosophical world, I've researched this concept from the point of view of a post-humanist perspective. So I don't want to get too academic-y. So let me just scale it back a bit. Humanism separates us as humans from the rest of the world away from nature, away from religion and a God, and it centers us as humans in both philosophical and theoretical understandings of the complexities of existing on this earth. Humanism as a theory not only disconnects humans from the rest of all living things on earth, it also recognizes that there is a standard or normal human, which as you may have guessed, is a cis man with all the other identities falling into the category of less than or other. From this perspective, you can see the automatic disadvantage that you face if you are not a man, not cis, not white, not able-bodied, etc., etc. Now, the idea of humanism stems all the way back to the ancient Greek and Roman times, and many of the philosophical ideas we connect back to the Enlightenment days actually have strong origins in these ancient civilizations. And as we know, We didn't begin to challenge this humanist idea pretty much until the 20th century. Actually, wait, that's not true. I am positive that there were many groups and cultures and communities and individuals who did and continue to challenge these notions, especially Indigenous people of every continent. But the mainstream historical record won't share those stories and successes of those people because it doesn't align with the mainstream history. And that's one of the most important things I've learned from sociology that I want to pass on to you. When we're told history, when we're told different stories, we need to question whose story are we hearing right now? Whose history is this? And whose history has been silenced because this has been shared louder or this has particular evidence to back it up? 
Coming back to humanism, this humanist understanding of man as default and woman as other is still present to this day. An easier way to understand this concept is if we have a look at privilege. And the more you are understood to be the default human, the more privilege you hold. The further away from that default human status you sit, the more marginalized, stigmatized, and sometimes even dehumanized you become. And we know that privilege is almost impossible to recognize when you are the one who holds it. And I think people with lots of privilege often are the most defensive about not having it. To really understand privilege, we need to just take a look at language. And I found this really great quote about privilege from an American sociologist called Michael Kimmel about how ingrained the cis white male privilege is in our society. It reads, to be white or straight or male or middle class is to be simultaneously ubiquitous and invisible. You're everywhere you look. You're the standard against which everyone else is measured. You're like water, like air. People will tell you they went to see a woman doctor, or they will say that they went to see the doctor. People will tell you they have a gay colleague, or they'll tell you about a colleague. A white person will be happy to tell you about a black friend, but when that same person simply mentions a friend, everyone will assume the person is white. Any college course that doesn't have the word woman or gay or minority in its title is a course about men, heterosexuals, and white people. But we call those courses literature, history, or political science. The invisibility is political. But what does this quote about privilege have to do with political whores, you might ask? The majority of sex workers are women. And that right there is the first deviation away from this humanist idea, which of course is male. But the intersection of sex worker and woman is the first of the oppression intersections that the majority of us embody. For many of us, we get into sex work because we have a number of disadvantages or intersections of oppression. Whether you're non-white, disabled, suffering from mental health or substance issues, or perhaps you just ended up in a situation where you felt like you had no other choice but to sell sex in order to get by. Whatever the reason was. Once you become a sex worker, your mere existence is political. Stigma is evidential of the underlying politics that feed into the sex industry, with debates surrounding whether the industry should even exist being undertaken by those so far removed from the issue that it's questionable as to why these people have so much to say on something that literally doesn't concern them in the first place. We know that we live in a society dominated by capitalism, which means our political policies are imposed through an economic perspective. And that means that we prioritize the economy above all else in almost all circumstances. We've seen that with COVID. We often fail to recognize that there's a strong link between human sexuality and citizenship. And the way in which societies are organized frequently support the normalcy of heterosexuality and monogamy. And if we look at policies, specifically cultural policies, we can see a preference for certain aspects of culture over other forms, which is a form of hegemony. Now, hegemony means the dominant culture uses education, philosophy, religion, aesthetics, and art to make its dominance appear normal and natural to the heterogeneous groups that constitute society. In other words, perhaps we were never explicitly told to not become sex workers, 
but the way in which society operates highlights and imposes an understanding of sexual women as bad, especially those of us who charge for it. The hegemonic dominance of society offers different understandings of male and female sexualities based on biological assumptions rather than a consequence of social differences in how female and male sexualities are constructed. This asserts the fact that under patriarchal society, male dominance within all social structures appears to be innate and natural rather than socially constructed. From this viewpoint, we can see the assumed hegemony of society is damaging to minorities who are often overlooked in the cultural mapping process. Cultural mapping is just another way of saying policy development. One of the biggest issues with cultural mapping lies in the silencing of certain people's voices. Often, the most marginalized people are ignored, especially when they function outside of legal frameworks, which is the case for many sex workers across the globe. Sex workers in much of the world certainly fall into this category, and have far too much to risk working under criminal systems where speaking out could put their lives in danger. And it's not just sex workers who are unique to this silencing technique. Think of drug users, homeless people, migrant workers, the elderly. All these marginalized people are so often ignored and overlooked when community development is underway. And individual freedoms can justifiably be denied to a member of the community who does not conform to social norms and heteronormativity, such as sex workers. And many Western politicians rely on biological essentialism to further their arguments surrounding what is natural to continue denying an individual's rights and freedoms. Given that much of human sexuality takes place in the private sphere rather than in the public space, it's often overlooked from a policy perspective. However, some academics argue that sexuality may be considered the magnetic core that lies at the heart of the national political and cultural agenda. They argue that sexuality is often used as a political tool in order to demonize bad citizens, such as queers, perverts, sex workers, and other minority sexualities, further establishing heterosexuality as the norm. All of these processes is hegemony in motion. Our deviation away from the norm doesn't change who we are as people. It doesn't change the fact that we're entitled to the same rights that all humans should be entitled to. Yet somehow, society has drank the Kool-Aid that has convinced them that this isn't true. It's 2021, and we are still arguing for our basic bodily autonomy or the right to decide what happens to our own bodies. We're still out here battling stigma and not listing our real occupations on rental applications, tax declarations, or telling our family how we make money. All of these lead back to the historical construction of the Madonna whore complex or the idea of the good versus bad woman. The Madonna whore complex is so interesting and it's way too big of a topic to really kind of extend on right now. So stay tuned because I do plan on doing a whole episode on Madonna whore. In many contexts, there is a level of shame and taboo that surrounds sexual discourses that are driven by historical and religious understandings of sexuality. As discussed, the natural understanding of sex as a tool to reinforce hegemonic heterosexuality encourages citizens to participate in accepted forms of sexuality, which include heterosexual, monogamous, procreative sexual interactions. 
sex workers, specifically female sex workers, actively challenge patriarchal ideals and expectations as they embrace and capitalize on their own sexualities. And it is for this reason that sex workers are so heavily vilified. When the sex industry is discussed in the public sphere, it often creates a moral panic in which a debate around the ethics of sex work is discussed among cultural experts or commentators. Ethical and moral questions are not unique to policy debates surrounding sex work only, as historically we've seen similar discussions that weigh up between science facts and ethics morals, including HIV prevention, stem cell research, and needle exchange programs. These examples of contentious issues have all been topics in which the status quo of society is threatened and a moral panic has been employed to fix the problem. And by giving priority to morals over rights, we ultimately deny full citizenship to certain people. In this case, it applies to those who deviate away from that heteronormative ideal through a lack of sexual citizenship. Now, sexual citizenship refers to the transformation of public life into a domain that is no longer dominated by male heterosexuals, but that is based in gender and sexual diversity. The goal is a society in which diverse people can take responsibility for their own sexual lives. But we're not at that point yet. We don't have full sexual citizenship for all citizens because if you are a sex worker where sex work is criminalized, it basically means that where you are tells you that you're not a full citizen because of how you engage in sex. Once we comprehend that much of our understanding of human, well, specifically female sexuality, is based on social constructs rather than these natural assumptions that we take for granted, we can then remove the moral and ethical questions and focus on the safety of all members within a society. Story time. Before I was a sex worker, I hadn't really paid much attention to my own understanding of sex work and or the sex industry as a whole. I considered myself a fairly forward thinker, but looking back now, I can see that there was a ton of internalized whorephobia that I had to unpack once I began this job. I started in this industry by posting an ad on Seeking Arrangement, the most common sugar baby platform. And I remember the offers I was receiving, you know, six years ago now. They were significant offers. All of the people who made significant offers obviously were expecting some sort of physical intimacy. And I remember telling myself over and over that I just wasn't that person. Through seeking arrangement, I ended up working for what I can now confidently call a pimp. And I was offering nude rub and tug massages from a service department opposite the aquarium in Melbourne. And I remember my second ever client offered me $500 for a blowjob. And I remember considering it. But again, I confirmed to myself that I wasn't that person. For me, it was never about having an issue with sex workers. I always told myself that there's nothing wrong with being a sex worker, but it just wasn't who I was. And I justified it in the sense that I believed that sex meant more to me. And it was more to do with my personal relationship to sex than having a problem with sex workers in the entire industry. Now, most of my ex-partners have been pretty terrible people. And it was hard for me to truly understand that you can have amazing sex with someone and it not mean anything. For me, it took me starting sex work to really understand that when my ex-boyfriend's mom told me that sex is not love 
and love is not sex, that she was right. Because most of my relationships with shitty people, I stayed way too long because of the sex. Because I always thought that good chemistry in the bedroom had to translate to something good outside of the bedroom. So I ended up staying with really shitty people for far too long. And that was until I got into sex work. And I started to have incredible sex with people I had zero attraction to. I was having amazing sex with people who had terrible personalities. I was having amazing sex with people I was put off by in the one-minute interaction in the intro room. And all of this taught me that sex isn't a sacred activity. It's not a special moment between two or more people. I mean, it definitely can be those things, but it definitely didn't have to be. And I honestly, I wish I'd known that sooner. But the reality is it took me working as a sex worker to really learn all of those things on my own. And I'm grateful for so many things that sex workers taught me, but I'll save those for another episode. I won't go into too many details now, but I was pushed across the line into full service work after an ex-boyfriend of mine ran off with a significant amount of my cash just two months before I was due to go on a half round the world trip. I wasn't going to let him stop me from traveling, so I packed up my car, I drove to a brothel in Canberra, and I literally haven't looked back. I remember my first ever full-service booking. It was a bigger guy, probably in his 30s. He told me he was a chef, and he worked really long, gross hours and didn't have time to date. He said he was looking for some intimacy, paid me extra for the girlfriend experience, and I remember we fucked for like three minutes. And he came really quickly. And then afterwards, he literally just wanted to cuddle and smooch and be intimate for that full one-hour booking. He was respectful. He was kind. He, you know, showered properly. And I remember walking out of the booking and thinking, was that it? Is that all I have to do? Because you know what? No part of my soul was gone. I never felt degraded. And I had some money in my pocket to show for it. And I thought back to all the one night stands I'd had, almost all of which were way less enjoyable and probably more degrading. And I never walked away from any of those with any extra cash. And it was that first night of working when I told myself that I was already madly in love with this job and that I could see myself doing this for a really long time. But it also got me thinking about society By this stage, I'd already finished my undergrad degree in sociology, where my two main topics that I chose to focus on were both gender feminist studies and the environment. And having those two topics under my belt meant that I was already well-versed in critiquing capitalism and patriarchy, but becoming a sex worker was like a portal into a different world opening up. Because while I had the theory in my toolbox, this job gave me the practical knowledge about how the world really was. As a whore, I could see that people with money aren't always people who worked hard and deserved it. They were often absolute fucking morons who could hardly wash their assholes properly. You meet other workers in the back rooms, some who are mothers supporting children, some are international students paying their degrees in full, some have criminal records and can't find other employment. Whatever their disadvantage, you could see that it was due to no fault of their own that they ended up selling sexual services. But what's the problem with selling sexual services? In a world where everything is commodified and for sale, why couldn't we use our own sexuality to exist in this capitalist bullshit? 
It was through working as a stigmatized whore that I really started to challenge those ideas fed to us about the world. Personally, I've never felt dirty when I was sex working. I actually really enjoy providing my sexual services to those who request it. I've never felt degraded working as a whore because I set my own boundaries and limitations. Now, I don't want to say that my experience is universal because bad things can go wrong. But keep in mind that bad things happen in all industries all the time. We just face higher risks because it's such an intimate job. When I did feel the most degraded, however, was when I was working in an acceptable, and acceptable is in quotation marks, job as a games dealer at a casino. How is it that the entire industry that I was now a part of, the sex industry, has questions on the morality of its existence with debates surrounding the objectification of women and the links to institutional violence as a key component for patriarchy. Most of these discussions, by the way, are by people outside of the industry because often, well, too often, sex workers are viewed as incapable of making our own decisions. And if we are outspoken and do publicly claim our enjoyment of this job, we face stigma, We face accusations of false consciousness and we get trolled. Yet at the same time, I could legally work in a casino owned by billionaires exploiting the vulnerable and the poor, being degraded and demeaned by management. And yet the question of moral existence of the gambling industry is nowhere to be seen. This absolutely has everything to do with the fact that we live in a world dominated by patriarchal capitalism and that those two concepts work together to maintain a particular hierarchy of power. To participate in society means to participate in capitalism, and to participate in capitalism means you need to sell your labour, whatever that labour may look like, to the bourgeoisie class. Nobody ever asks if the person serving you at the drive-thru is feeling degraded or empowered by their work. So why is it that when we sell sexual services in order to survive, that question is thrown at us? The big question for me was, why are we the most stigmatized workers under this bullshit system? I argue that this unwarranted stigmatization often leads to the politicization of individuals. On a personal level, this absolutely was the case for me. So this is the first part of the radicalization, recognizing that stigma is bullshit, unwarranted, and straight up unfair, which starts to beg the question of why? What's at stake here? Why are we so demonized? And I think if we fail to understand history, we can be completely ignorant to the social construction of fucking everything. Literally fucking everything. Before becoming a sex worker, as I mentioned, I was really passionate about the environment. And I actually did my undergrad internship with the city of Melbourne, where I wrote a report on the waste management system of localities around the world and investigated incorporating food waste as part of the waste management system. At that time, I saw my future as an environmental activist and was looking for jobs in environmental research when I became a whore. While I'm still a passionate advocate for environmental rights, I saw that there were real people who need advocating, real people who are literally just trying to survive through this capitalist bullshit who have urgent needs. And that's not to say that the environmental plight is not urgent. It absolutely is. But I saw that I held a lot of privilege, especially within the sex working community. Again, I've discussed most of this in my disclaimer, but I'm lucky enough to work as a sex worker under the best legal system of decriminalization. Workers in New South Wales are all working under a decriminalized model. 
Yet we still face discrimination and we still face stigma. How could I not want to advocate for my own community, for the incredible people I've met in back rooms and in online worker spaces? How could I continue to allow society to keep rolling the way it has by punishing women, non-white, non-cis, disabled, migrant, and fat people for taking ownership of our bodies? We as sex workers are raised in a society that objectifies us. Yet when we take that control of the objectification, we're demonized. That to me doesn't make any sense. And that's why I speak out. And I want all you civilians to recognize that you have a lot of unpacking to do. For civilians, exposure is just the first step. And representation is really important. That's one of the reasons why I'm so happy to see those other whole podcasts popping up. Because it's going to further humanize and normalize our existence. For many sex workers, we don't come from privileged places. And that's not to say that we all grew up poor. But I'd argue that more often than not, we do. And when you know what it's like to have nothing, you have empathy. You have an understanding of what it's like to have to rely on community care or to put your hand out asking for help. And I think this is a key aspect of politicization. Having that level of empathy towards others, recognizing the privileges you do carry, and trying to use those to uplift others. It also explains why cis white men are usually the last to advocate for any sort of social change, because the system's rigged in their favor. They already hold all the privileges. And even though for a lot of them, the patriarchal system actually works against them, they're too ignorant to recognize this and instead see those who speak out as a threat to those privileges they hold rather than a challenge to the entire corrupt system. Now, bringing in intersectionality, the more intersections of oppression you face, the deeper the visibility of the societal farce. So if we look at race as an example, our understanding of beauty stems from a white understanding of beauty. Thinness, light skin, light hair, light eyes are all seen as the ideal to strive toward within our society. From the perspective of the sex industry, beauty is capitalized and used to differentiate certain workers. Now, I had a friend who worked in a brothel in Chatswood, which is on the north side of Sydney, and the brothel was predominantly Asian workers. But because my friend was white, the brothel actually charged higher rates for her services. Now, when she told me this, I think my jaw hit the floor because honestly, I can't imagine what that must feel like to share a backroom space and to see a colleague provide the same service, but to be paid more because she has a different background to you. The understanding that Asian women are more submissive and exotic fetishizes them in a way that white women will never understand. And this can be applied to other ethnicities outside of whiteness. And it's not just about beauty. The way we understand black women in Western societies is telling from a simple Google search. At least a few years ago it was. I remember reading this book called Algorithms of Oppression, written by a black woman, Sophia Noble. The book was published in 2018, so it's not that long ago. And in it, Noble wrote about the images produced when she searched simple terms such as white woman, or black women. White women in a Google image search were happy, beautiful, often playing the role of mother or wife. Whereas when she searched for black woman, the algorithm spat out images of angry and sexualized black women. I did a quick search now and it doesn't seem to be showing that. And I argue that that could be for two reasons. It could either be because Google have updated their algorithms to not produce stereotypical results or 
and this is the reason I think, we often think of something like Google as a public good, as an objective entity that exists to give you the right answers. And that's what it does. It gives you the right answers based on who you are. Because Google isn't a public good. It's a business. They operate like a business. And they are going to give you what they think you want to hear. So if you're an anti-vaxxer and the content you consume is dominated by anti-vax campaigns, when you search, is the vaccine good, your results will tell you what you want to hear. And it'll provide your first page of results as anti-vax propaganda. I'm assuming that my Google search is based off this second reason, because I think Google might recognize my own personal politics as challenging stereotypes and historical construction of certain identities. But in reality, we'll never really know. But just remember that Google is not an objective space. Coming back to intersectionality, the more intersections of oppression that you face, the more obvious the societal lies are to you. I think I'm getting a little bit off topic here. So let's come back to the radicalization of whores. I think all of these intersections of oppression lead us to really question the state of the world. And a huge turning point for me was when I had to interact with police. When I was 19, I was sexually assaulted. And it wasn't until 2018 that I got a phone call from some constable asking me to come in to make a statement against this person who is now under investigation for putting his ex-girlfriend in hospital. I wasn't a sex worker at the time of the incident, and I sat at the cop shop for four hours going through what I remembered of this man. The original officer I dealt with was really supportive and patient, but we established that I couldn't provide enough evidence to be a part of this case. But what came out during our discussion was the realization that a few months after the initial incident the police wanted to talk to me about, I'd actually been raped at a house party in Brighton. Now, in a pre-Me Too world, I didn't have the confidence to call what had happened to me for what it was, which was rape. This second incident happened in a different jurisdiction from the original investigation. So my details were forwarded to another station and I was contacted soon after by a different officer. Within the space of a five-minute phone conversation, this new policewoman basically told me that what happened to me was unfortunate, but by the sound of it, there was nothing she could do. If you've grown up in a Western society, you've probably been socialized into believing that the cops are there to help you. And when I went to the police for assistance, they basically told me that if I pursued it, it probably wouldn't be worth it. And even if I did, it would be long and emotional and draining. And obviously, I ended up just dropping it. And I share this because I carry a lot of privilege and I still couldn't get the support from law enforcement. I can't imagine going to the police as a non-white, non-cis, non-abled, or even as a non-English speaker with any sort of issue and seeing the police actually assist. This in itself is radicalizing. And for all those workers out there working under criminal models, the threat of persecution when claiming to be the victim of a crime is even higher. Because under full illegalization of sex work, sex workers who are assaulted cannot go to police. The fact that our profession is illegal in some places mean that workers who go to the police about getting assaulted are often arrested themselves. Now, how can this not radicalize you? A person selling sexual services, trying to survive, gets arrested because they were assaulted. But what this is really telling the worker is, you don't matter. And then if you weren't a sex worker, this assault might not have happened. So it's really your own fault. But just to be sure, we'll lock you up and take away your income for a few days. 
That'll really teach you. Criminal models that make all forms of sex work illegal put the onus on the workers and not on the client. Discussions around the sex industry almost never include any sort of discussions around the client, except, of course, in the classic Nordic model. The Nordic model, which was engineered by SWERFs, which are sex worker exclusionary radical feminists, seek to criminalize the clients when procuring sexual services. SWERFs think this is an excellent idea to dismantle the sex industry. But the reality is that this is just another framework which seeks to further endanger workers. Under the Nordic model, by punishing the clients, the engineers of this system believe that it will make men less interested in seeking out these services to eventually wean out the sex industry altogether. But without addressing the real issue of why are men even seeking out sexual services in the first place, the demand obviously doesn't go down. What happens when the Nordic model is employed is clients are less willing to go through screening methods because the threat of prosecution on them looms. And instead, workers are faced with making tough decisions about seeing clients without screening and potentially putting themselves in dangerous situations or to go without pay. And it's so, so frustrating that these discussions around the existence of our industry only seems to focus on the workers. Why would she do that to her body? She must have been coerced, etc., etc. But I'm yet to hear any discussion surrounding why so many men are seeking sexual services. There's no discussion around the sexual double standards between the genders. There's no conversation about the infidelity of the majority of our clients. There's no discussion on the countless requests for natural services from these types of clients. There's no discussion surrounding consequences of violent behaviours, even outside the sex industry. In so-called Australia, we have an average of one woman per week being murdered at the hands of her own partner, while almost 10 a day are ending up in the hospital due to domestic violence. One per week murdered and almost 10 a day in hospital. But we still want to talk about whether it's okay for a woman to suck dick for money. How can this not radicalize us? The second reason I can think of as to why we're such a political group is the way we operate within capitalism. For the majority of workers, we work a lot less hours per week than the average corporate slave. Karl Marx famously said in the 19th century that religion was the opium of the people. And I argue that consumerism has overtaken religion as the modern opium, keeping the masses of people chasing the dangled carrot, always wanting more and more of whatever the ads or the influences are telling them to want, never feeling satisfied or content with their current material possession. Consumerism is the little brother of capitalism, and they work together to keep people exhausted and wanting, and for a lot of sex workers, our lifestyles are a little different. The main difference between these lifestyles is the amount of free time that we have to consider the philosophy upholding modern society. The average worker works, what, 38 plus hours a week? If you're working close to 40 hours a week or more, the last thing you want to do when you get home from work is think about why. Why are you training yourself to a desk for so many hours a week? No, you want to come home, you want to relax. You want to forget about work and everything else and just blow off steam and be ignorant to the state of things. For example, a good friend of mine works in advertising, one of the biggest scam industries in existence, but we won't get into that here. He works from like 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., sometimes even 8 or 9 p.m., five days a week. 
And he's been doing that for over a decade. And he's got a very work hard, play hard lifestyle. He doesn't spend his weekends philosophizing on why he sells so much of his time to his employer, at a loss of course, or why we exist on this planet. He's ignorant to all of it. He's a cis white man. He's gay, but we live in Sydney, so he's hardly oppressed as a gay man. Not only that, but he's distracted by consumerism. He's a sharp looking man. Fresh haircuts every few weeks. He drives a new VW, got enough money to get on the bags every other weekend. What more could he ask for? He has all the things anyone could need in this world. So what is there to even question? And to be honest, sometimes I kind of wish that was me. I wish I didn't really know about how the world was working or how unfair and disadvantaged it is for some people. And I often think how ignorance truly is bliss. And there was this class in my master's degree where we spoke about the importance and influence of sci-fi movies on society. And we somehow got talking about the matrix and I argued that knowledge of the world was like taking the red pill in the matrix. You really see how the world is. And the more you know about the true world, the harder it is to ignore. And I think when you're a sex worker, you're exposed to so much that the rest of society doesn't get to see that it can be really hard not to do anything about it or at least not want to do something about it. And I do want to just mention here that some of those marginalized and stigmatized people don't get to escape from it. They don't have the option of being ignorant to the world. And I think that's where sex work differs a little bit from other marginalizations because there is a level of choice in it. If you don't have white skin, that is completely out of your control. You cannot change it. You didn't choose it. It is what it is. You don't get to be ignorant to your experience in the world. And that's where sex work and some of those other marginalities tend to differ. So sex work, uh, I guess you could apply it to another group like drug users. There is a level of choice. And I say level because, you know, we are working with the circumstances of our own lives. And some of the things we end up doing may be seen as a choice for some people, but may not be an ultimate choice that you really get to choose from. So I do just want to point out that there is a slight difference to some of those marginalities. Coming back to ignorance is bliss. The flexibility of our working hours really plays into that. And again, I'm talking in a really general sense, especially when it comes to the lifestyle aspect, because for the last three years, I mentioned in my last episode, I've done sex work to be time rich, not money rich. And this has allowed me to survive, not thrive off of working only one day a week. So on a personal level, I've had about six days a week for the last three years on top of a humanities postgraduate degree to really analyze the world we live in. If I wasn't a sex worker and I had to do 20 or even 30 hours a week, I don't think I'd have the energy to really process the world around me. I'd be too exhausted to think outside of my working hours because that's how the system is designed. It's designed to keep you busy and distracted. It's designed to keep you striving for more and more material things, all while selling your labor to make a profit for someone else. And the flexibility of sex work and those non-rigid hours is actually how many people end up in the industry. And I certainly know a number of disabled workers, whether those disabilities are physical or mental, who do sex work because of the flexibility and independence of the work. Under capitalism, there aren't too many jobs that provide that same independent flexibility, especially to those who aren't able-bodied or able-minded. 
The same thing applies to working mums who may need to work weird hours depending on their childcare options, as well as people who have criminal records. Often having a criminal record is a huge hurdle to gaining employment, but not to enter the sex industry. Just on the topic of criminals, I mentioned before how interactions with police is one way to radicalize you. And I think the same goes for criminals. Again, we've been socialized to believe that criminals are born that way, that there are bad people in this world who don't deserve the same rights as the rest of us. But most criminals, as we currently understand the word, are just surviving. And I've met a number of workers in back rooms of brothels who had stories to share. And that helps humanize the criminal experience. Most civilians don't have to confront the reality of who a criminal is. And without that reality, it can be easy to continue to believe that criminals are just bad people born that way, rather than seeing that the system is designed to keep certain people down and out of power or autonomy of any kind. If you're in so-called Australia and you haven't already watched Incarceration Nation on SBS, you must go and watch it after you finish this episode. The doco focuses on the over-policing of Indigenous and non-white, not just adults, but children, as we are one of the few places in the world that hold children as young as 10 criminally responsible for their actions. And in the Northern Territory, which has the highest proportion of Indigenous people anywhere in so-called Australia, 100% of the children in youth detention are Indigenous. It is beyond shocking. Incarceration Nation examines the two main drivers of Indigenous incarceration, and looks at the connection between relentless government intervention since colonization and the ongoing trauma and disadvantage which leads to criminality. But the real criminals in our society are the 1%, the bourgeoisie class who exploit not only their workers, but the entire global environment, all for a profit, while people go hungry, sleep in the streets, and are so traumatized they turn to stealing, drug use, or worse, in order to cope with the shit hand the universe has dealt them. And this is why representation really is important. Representation means exposure to certain ideas that don't necessarily exist within your current worldview. The more exposure to something, the more normalized it becomes. So we need representation of all the marginalized identities out there, whether it's sex workers or criminals, or any other identity that we as a society have managed to dehumanize. At the end of the day, the real human rights of all us marginalized people is more important than your morals or ethics. Because if your morals or ethics tell you that someone is not worthy of human rights because of what they do for money, or where or how they were born, then frankly, your morals and ethics are just wrong. At the end of the day, if you're a sex worker, Whether or not you're actively participating in activism or not, your pure existence is political. We go against what society tells us we should be, and we work with what we've got. If you're thriving or just surviving, both are okay. Your community loves you, and we will always hold and share this space for those among us who need support. For me personally, I've definitely become more political and vocal as I've gotten older, And I look back at who I was in my teens and I cringe at how problematic I was. In the days before smartphones and social media, the culture was very different. And I think for a lot of younger people, people in their teens and early 20s now, there's no lack of access to information, especially from diverse voices from all over the world compared to those a few years older like myself. 
Sometimes my Facebook memories pop up from a decade or more ago with terrible status updates that I immediately delete out of pure embarrassment of who I used to be. And I think it can be really difficult not to feed into cancel culture when you come across someone with a different political view to your own. I know how frustrating it can be, especially when you see a level of ignorance to their perspective that is infuriating. Campaigning for our own and others' basic human rights really feels like work we shouldn't have to still be doing in 2021, but we will prevail. And slowly but surely, we will get there. And just before I wrap up today's episode, because I feel like this might be a bit of a long one, I just wanted to remind everyone of a concept called lateral violence. It's a concept I speak of often, as I really see a lot of energy being directed at the wrong people. Lateral violence is the idea that marginalized people often feel powerless against their oppressors. So they direct their anger and frustration at either their peers or sometimes onto themselves. I see so much gatekeeping, attacks and attempts at canceling people within the same community all because someone said something problematic or made a genuine mistake. Part of the reason I took a break from Instagram is because I recently was on the receiving end of a campaign against me from a number of community members who saw a post in which my wording was slightly off. I take ownership of what I said and I apologize to anyone who was offended. Nobody's perfect and we are all going to make mistakes and how we engage with problematic people or people who have made mistakes is extremely telling of the environment we're all forced to exist in. Attacking people's mental health, appearance, or sexuality is absolutely not acceptable in any context. And as I mentioned on my Instagram, I will not be engaging with anyone who takes this stance. I'm always open to constructive dialogue when I have capacity and energy. Forcing people to have conversations they don't want to have or don't have the capacity for seems beyond pointless to me. And I wouldn't want to force anyone to have a conversation they weren't ready to have. And I say this as a reminder that not every battle is worth fighting for. Some people want to argue for argument's sake. Some people like to play devil's advocate. And some people are true trolls who are engaging for no other reason than to get a rise out of us. So protect your energy. You don't need to fight all day, every day. Activism is exhausting, repetitive, and draining work. As this episode suggests, your existence is political. And if you can do nothing more than survive as a sex worker, then you do just that. If you have energy and capacity to do more, that's amazing too. But either way, thanks for existing. I'm proud of you. Thanks for listening. I'll speak soon. Bye, angels.